0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books. And this week I'm very happy to say we have Matthias Diesermann on the show, and we'll be talking about his very interesting book, Historiography in Saudi Arabia, Globalization and the State in the Middle East. I confess to Matthias that I know absolutely nothing about uh, Saudi history, and, and I'd be willing to bet that most people don't know a lot about it. So it's a particular uh, blessing for us to have him on the show today. This is an incredibly important part of the world and one that I think that most people don't really just are totally ignorant about, which is which is uh, too bad, I would say. So first of all, I want to thank Matthias for writing the book. Thank you and appearing, uh, appearing on the show.
1: My great pleasure.
0: Absolutely. Could you kick the interview off for us, Matthias, by uh, telling us... A little bit about yourself?
1: Um, yes, with pleasure. Um, my name is Matthias Dietermann. Um, I'm teaching as a faculty member at Virginia Commonwealth University in Qatar, um, but I'm not a Qatari, not a, not a Saudi, but I'm originally from um, Germany and I'm currently spending um, parts of my summer in Vienna, Austria.
0: Mm -hmm. And and explain to us then, how how did you get into studying, uh, well, into studying um, Arabs? Let's put it that way.
1: Yeah. Um, I studied history and Arabic studies um, um, for my first degrees um, at the University of Vienna in Austria. And I wanted to do um, history from my high school days. I'm one of those perhaps many historians who had a great high school teacher um, who inspired me to go on to do history. However, I wanted to do um, um, non-European history because I am from Europe and I just wanted to learn about uh, about another culture, another world region. Um, And I graduated from high school in 2003. And that was, um, yeah, a time when, unfortunately, the Middle East was perhaps um, the the hottest non-European world mm-hmm. region, um, not just in terms of temperature, but also, obviously, in terms of politics. 2003 was the invasion of Iraq. Um, 2001 was um, 9-11, obviously. 2002, the war in Afghanistan. Um, so um, the Middle East, the Arab world, um, was around 2003 very much um, in the media as it has been ever since um, and so I think that just attracted me to the study of Arabic and the Middle East mm-hmm.
0: I, I was going to ask because well let me, let, me, let me preface I don't think it's very easy to study um, Arab history in the United States I'm sure lots of people will tell me I'm wrong but uh, is it, is, it uh, is the study of uh, Arabs and uh, sort of Middle Eastern culture and history well developed in the Deutsche Sprachraum, you know, in the in the German speaking regions.
1: Uh, Yes, it is. Um, The German speaking um, Sprachraum, as you said, had a long um, tradition of Orientalist scholarship. Um, The Habsburg Empire was, of course, bordering for a long time with the Ottoman Empire. Um, So um, uh, the Habsburg had a long history of relations um, with the with the Ottoman Empire, and uh, there were always, or um, for long periods, there have been um, uh, schools teaching um, diplomats um, Arabic and Mm -hmm. Oriental languages in general. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm a little bit aware of that. I mean, I I, I only say that because I know a lot of historians, partially because I host... um, new books in history, but also because I've been in the discipline for about a quarter century, and I don't think I can name a single historian of the Arab Peninsula. I mean, I know <laughs> hundreds of historians, but I can't name one. So, um, it's, it's kind of a remarkable thing you've done, and I just I've, I'm sort of in mm-hmm. awe of it. That's really, it's a very brave thing to do. To, to, Thank to, you so to, much. To do something like that. So, why did you write historiography in Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, globalization, and the state in the Middle East?
1: Um. Well, <laughs> Um like you, I didn't know many um, historians who worked on the Arabian Peninsula. Um, f- so I feel that this was kind of a f- fresh field sort of study with, um, yeah, um, a lot that can still be done, a lot of r- history that can be written, recovered. However, perhaps a more personal reason is that... Um, I actually, after completing my undergraduate studies in Arabic and history, I got a job teaching German language at a Saudi university, um, King Saud University. Um, and so I found myself in the country connecting with Saudi historians, talking to them, visiting their, um, their workshops. And then I um, decided to do a PhD on um, the history of Saudi Arabia. Um, and basically, um, because there were so few uh, Western historians of Saudi Arabia, I wanted to start by basically reading, um, everything that Saudis have ever written about their history, or at least trying to do so. Um, and so i um, studied this topic, um, historiography in Saudi Arabia for my PhD, and um, the book is basically a revised version of that PhD thesis. The PhD thesis um, was completed at the School of Oriental and African Studies, which is part of the University of London.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's funny you mentioned that. Uh, studying reasonably... I don't don't know how best to put it, but studying obscure topics of important nations. So I used to study, I I guess I still do study to some extent medieval and early modern Russia, and I had trouble explaining to people why anybody would ever be interested in that. And one of my professors uh, explained it best. He said, you know what? It's probably not very important to you, but it's really important to them. (laughs) 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 I think that's pretty much right. Um, So so let me ask a further question before we get to the book. Saudi Arabia is not a liberal culture; uh, it is an absolute monarchy. Uh, it, it it is of it is uh, I don't know if it's, if you would call it an, an Islamic state, but it, it, Islam is very extraordinarily important in it. Uh, they have censorship laws. Uh, h- how do you go about studying Saudi history in that environment?
1: Um, how do I or how do um, how does, Saudi historians do? How does do?
0: one in general and how did you?
1: It's true, I mean Saudi Arabia is a conservative country, it is a um, monarchy whose government is not elected It many would see including many Saudis would describe their country as an Islamic state um, the Saudi government certainly um, would like to see it um, itself and this it is perhaps closest to um, yeah an Islamic state um, among countries today. Um, However, um, as in any societies, obviously there are conservatives and there are liberals. Um, Saudi Arabia has witnessed a kind of opening since um, the early 2000s. Um, 2001 was not just a shock for America and the rest of the world, but also for Saudi Arabia. Um, Osama bin Laden was um, for um, most parts of his life a Saudi citizen. Many of the hijackers on 9-11 were um, Saudis. And um, also Saudi Arabia recognized in the early 2000s, if it had not done before, that it had a domestic terrorism problem as well. Um, So um, at the same time, of course, um, Saudi Arabia um, was getting a lot of... um, that um, press um, in other countries in America, there was a lot of criticism um, um, and at that time the Saudi, uh, s- certain Saudi institutions um, perhaps reacted to that by um, inviting foreign scholars hmm. um, like myself to study the country and to learn about the country and um learned it perhaps in a better way than many journalists did who wrote in a, about Saudi Arabia, perhaps in a more superficial way, so I had um, great support actually from the Saudi side, especially from one um, center called the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic studies. Um, it is connected to one part of the Saudi royal family and um, they provided me with a visa. They provided me with um, um, yeah, contacts, with um, official letters. Um, so thanks um, to them, to that King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies, um, I actually had a very good time in Saudi Arabia. And um, it was a very good and comfortable and safe experience to do
0: research there. Hmm, that's interesting. So they seem comfortable with
1: that. Um, yeah. That's amazing. Um, that's I think so.
0: Yeah, that's, that's um, very, it's very interesting. Because, you know, I mean, I did research in the Soviet Union and they were not comfortable with anything. <laughs> uh, I think that's largely because they realized sort of how tenuous their control was of the place that they governed. Whereas I imagine that the Saud family is much more secure.
1: Um, I think so. I mean, it is um, one of the most stable wealthiest and safest places in the middle east mm-hmm. um and i mean not just in comparison with syria and iraq and egypt but also obviously with other oil states such as libya for instance um so yeah it is a safe and comfortable place and um uh, uh, like i think the saudis um uh, they knew that after 9-11 they got in lot of bad press um so I think an, an academic researcher who would write about Saudi Arabia um, would perhaps, yeah, help them, also help them solve their problems um, and would, would certainly write something that is more nuanced and better um, than many accounts by journalists who only spend very brief periods of time in the kingdom, if at
0: all. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, what they're saying is we really have nothing to hide. We'd invite you to come here and check yeah. us out. Yeah, that's very interesting. So let's actually talk about the meat of the book, and that is about the writing of history by Saudis, of their own history. And when we talk about Saudi history, where, where exactly do we start? I mean, I know that the Saud family came to power in the 30s. Is that right?
1: Um. Right, or at least in the 1930s, that was when the current modern state, modern kingdom of Saudi Arabia was formally established mm-hmm. under that name. Mm-hmm. Um, the Saudi family is a native family of Arabia that has been um, in Arabia for hundreds of years and actually established um, two states before the current um, Modern Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. There was a first Saudi state um, from um, around the middle of the 18th century until the early 19th century, and there was a second Saudi state um, in the middle decades of the 19th century. Um, So many historians actually um, um, trace back the history of modern Saudi Arabia, to the middle of the 18th century when um, uh, the first Saudi state um, was established. However, um, when, of course, history begins in Arabia, um, isn't itself a contested issue.
0: Yeah. The reason I ask this is that, you know, in most dynastic States, and this was certainly true in early modern and medieval Europe, that history was the history of the monarchy, and it was dynastic history. And um, that is sort of where, that is where your book starts, with dynastic history. So could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Um, yeah. Um, so there has been a um, long tradition of dynastic historiography, um, history focusing on great men, history focusing on political events. Um, on the rulers. And like you said, that is not that different um, in itself from dynastic history. It's written in many other countries in many different periods um, of history. Um, so even or already during the f- first Saudi state, um, you had one important chronicler in particular called Abu uh, Hussein ibn Rannam, who wrote a foundational um, work on um, on history, on the history of the Saudi state, and on the history of the Wahhabi mission, that is the mission of a religious reformer called Sheikh um, or sometimes Imam, Muhammad ibn Abd al-Wahhab. Um, and the Wahhabi um, mission, actually, that is associated with the Al-Sa'ud family, or with the House of Sa'ud, is actually what distinguishes um Saudi dynastic histories from the dynastic histories of many other countries. Um, that um, Saudi um, dynastic histories for a very long period of time and to, to some extent still in the present up to the present have a strong religious element. Um, Saudi dynastic history or histories have tried to legitimize the actions of Saudi rulers, the establishment of the Saudi state, religiously. Often by um, describing the pre-Saudi condition as very bad politically and, importantly, religiously. And um, historians um, of the Saudi dynasty um, like Ibn Rannam and his followers, Ibn Labun, Ibn Bishr, and others, they especially used an Arabic and Islamic notion um, of the Jahiliya. Jahiliya means an age of ignorance. It means the opposite of Islam. And um, basically, if our, um, these dynastic historians constructed history as in a way that before. And without Saudi rule, there was the opposite of Islam. There was um, a, a time of infighting, of abominations, of everything that is negative. Almost. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So it was the Saud family and the Wah. Wahhab- they brought the Wahhabis with them, I guess, and that brought this new I guess, enlightenment. Is that maybe a word we could use? They.
1: Um certainly they um they brought the light um to arabia mm-hmm. um although a religious light so the light of islam if you will mm-hmm. um
0: yeah so i was going to say were these historians that you're talking about uh were they in the employ of the saud family
1: yes um uh, they were
0: uh-huh. um
1: like on the um, in one way or another these historians so i mentioned ibn ranan ibn Labun Ibn Bishr, were at some points on the payroll of the Saudi state and um, received support, also material support um, such as paper um, from the Saudi state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: Um, And and did they have any uh, I was going to say formal training, but had they attended university someplace or were they simply court historians?
1: Um. Good question. Actually, the first um, um, uh, Saudi university, King Sa'ud University, where I myself taught, was only founded in 1957. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, for long periods um, in the 18th, 19th century, early 20th century, um, uh, there were no universities at all. So the religious scholars among the historians, they had a traditional Religious training um, in the um, central region of Arabia called Mm Najd.
0: So they were essentially brought up into this tradition. And once the Saudi family sort of consolidated the state, they began to write dynastic histories, which were apologetic, we might call them. They They explained why the Saud family was in the position it was in. Explained and justified. Exactly. Yes. So this begins to change, you say, in the 70s. When uh, well, I won't say change. That, that local histories begin to appear. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, actually, um, there, um, there's also a very long tradition of local historiography in the Arabian Peninsula, especially in the holy places of Islam, Mecca or Makkah and Medina. Um, so, over hundreds of years, actually, histories of these places uh, were written. However, in the course of the twentieth century, as the modern Saudi state was established, um, uh, the number of these local histories actually um, increased, and also we have increasing um, histories from an increasing number of regions, so not not just the um, all the centers of learning Mecca and Medina, but also of um, um, oases such as Al-Ahsa in the eastern part of Saudi Arabia or in the southern region of Saudi Arabia called Asir. Um, so there is some, um, a proliferation of local histories in parallel to the, um, um, to the production of dynastic
0: histories. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So then, uh, I found this very interesting because it matches a kind of it's a, it's a moment at which Saudi history is is in sync with other Arab histories, and that is the sixties and nationalization. Um, and this this broaches the topic of the development of the Saudi state itself, that it's, its enlargement, um, also the emergence of a Sa- Saudi nation. And nation is in quotes. And then, of course, globalization. Can you talk about the ways in which these three things shaped Saudi historiography in the 60s and the 70s?
1: Um, Yeah, um, great question. Um, Now, um, nationalism, the expansion of the state, and also um, globalization um, affected both dynastic historiography and um, the various local and regional historiographies throughout the kingdom. Um, globalization and state expansion are sometimes seen as contradictory. So um, globalization is sometimes seen as the antithesis of the nation state. However, in many cases, and especially in the Saudi case, there's actually a connection um, between the two. So the expansion of this modern Saudi state was made possible through Um, the growth in oil revenues, which, of course, depend on the global market Mm -hmm. and the global consumption of um, fossil fuels, which expands with globalization. Um, Also, nationalism um, becomes important as with globalization as the Saudi state engages with other nations um, in a more uh, intensive way. So, in its dealings with other nations, you need symbols of a nation, like national anthem, like borders, like passports, like a flag. Um, So we actually see this in parallel expansion of the Saudi state, globalization, and growth of Saudi nationalism. Growth of Saudi nationalism affected both dynastic historiography and local and regional historiography. in terms of dynastic historiography, the religious legitimation becomes less important than it was before the 1950s. Um, so now you have a national legitimation and whereas in the past you had the notion of jahiliya, of age of ignorance, the opposite of Islam that was in a background to the establishment of the Saudi rule. Um, from the 1950s, 60s, 70s onwards, you had division, uh, national division as becoming, uh, becoming the prominent background to the establishment of the Saudi state. And the Saudi state was seen as the unifier of Arabia. So it was still s- seen as the state that brought Islam and the correct, the Wahhabi movement the Wahhabi mission, but it was also seen as the state uh, as the state that unified the country. So similar to Bismarck, for instance, or uh, in Germany, or Garibaldi in Italy, you had a Saudi unifier. And that became King Abdelaziz of al-Saud, the first Saudi king who ruled um, between 1902 and the early 1950s. Uh, so he was seen as the unifier, but of course, after the kingdom was unified um, in the 1930s, um, then you needed an additional legitimation for the subsequent Saudi kings. So King Abdelaziz was seen as the unifier, um, if you will, as the Bismarck of Saudi Arabia, and um, subsequent Saudi kings were seen as the developers of the Saudi uh, of the Saudi kingdom. So you had Economic development and um, social development and all other kinds of developments and the subsequent Saudi kings who ruled between between the 1950s and the present were seen as the developers of the country. So we see two national tropes: unification and development, becoming important in dynastic historiography mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in. Local historiography, we can also see the influence of the rising nationalism. Um, So previously, before the 1950s, there was little Saudi nationalism um, in the the local histories. Local histories were, were very particularistic. They focused on a given town or region on its own terms. Um, They didn't write much about the House of Saud. They didn't write much about the Wahhabi mission. They wrote more about local customs, local traditions, social traditions, also religious uh, religious traditions, some of which were actually suppressed under Saudi rule, but then recovered by local historians. Um, There was also the notion that people of Mecca and Medina were actually Muslims before um, the rise of the Wahhabi movement. So in that sense, local histories challenged that uh, those earlier di- religious dynastic narratives that said that before the House of Saud, before the Wahhabi mission, the condition of the country was the opposite of Islam almost. Mm-hmm. Um, now I said the um, local histories were also in- influenced by nationalism, so again, we see religion after the 1970s actually becoming a bit less important—not disappearing, but becoming less important—and national narratives were becoming are becoming important, um, and then um, uh, the subsequent local and regional histories were contribution histories. So, whereas the dynastic history is focused on Saudi kings as the main actors, the unifiers and developers of the country, different local historians try to argue for the contribution of their um, town or region to the unification and development of the country. So we see histories saying that this town or this tribe um, actually made an important contribution to the establishment of the nation and hence is a very valuable part of the nation and perhaps um, should receive a fair share in the wealth of the country. (laughs) Um, So this is sort of a subtle challenge then to the dynastic histories whereas many dynastic histories would like to portray the country and the achievements of the country as exclusively the product of the actions by rulers, we have um, from the various towns and regions, um, local historians who want to claim their share in the history of the nation and by implication perhaps also in the wealth of the nation um, through their own narratives.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that's very interesting. It, it, and there are lots of parallels to other... Nation builders, I would say in over the nineteenth and twentieth century well, one of them that I think is similar to is similar to all of these other nation building efforts, but is also different and that is that the the Saudis had to deal with the fact that although they were saying that the people of the Arab Peninsula were one, they were in fact many, that there were Bedouins and there were other there were tribal divisions and things such as this, so that 's one difficulty in claiming that there was a unified Saudi nation, um, if they claimed that, uh, but, but the other difficulty and the one that makes it unique, I don't know if it's unique, but the other makes it different is pan Arab nationalism. And the Saudis, as I remember, were very early, they were quite enthusiastic about this early on. Um, and the 1960s was sort of the the, the, the high point of it, the late 1960s. So how, how do they deal with these two, these two complications of their national narrative? I'm particularly interested in the pan-Arab nationalism one, because that one is really nothing, you know, it's hard to... It's like, It reminds me a little bit of pan-Slavism, you know, it's sort of trying to unify all the Slavs, but go ahead and talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, Pan-Arabism, or Arab nationalism, is actually older, considerably older, um, than um, um, Saudi nationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, Arab nationalism Arab pan-arabism perhaps goes back to the 19th century um and uh Saudi nationalism perhaps to the yeah 1970s or perhaps 1950s and most of the 1930s really um so initially many dynastic histories um in the first half of the um 20th century were actually pan-arab or arab nationalist rather than Saudi nationalists. That's interesting. Um, um, That um, had to do with the fact that in the first half of the 20th century, many people who wrote dynastic histories were actually non-Saudis. They were Arabs often from Egypt or from greater Syria, that is Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, who had an advantage in education over many Saudis. Um, and who were employed by the royal court because of their expertise and also because these foreigners actually didn't have a local power base. So the Saudi family could entrust powers um, to these foreigners in the royal court knowing that they these foreigners would not be able to take over. Mm-hmm. Um, and these foreigners from Syria, greater Syria, Or Egypt, they were often Arab nationalists. And they looked at other Arab countries and tried to legitimize this Saudi state also in the eyes of um, fellow Arabs. Um, That was especially important in sort of the 1950s, one of the high points of Arab nationalism. Um, Subsequently, in the 1960s, the relationship between the Saudi monarchy and Arab nationalism was a bit more uneasy because Arab nationalism was um, championed by the um, um, president of the United Arab Republic or Egypt, um, Gamal Abdel Nasser or Nasser, who was a Republican, a socialist, um, a strong anti um yeah, basically monarchical figure. Um so in the nineteen sixties, actually Saudi rulers and Saudi historians um to some extent wanted to promote pan Islamism rather than pan Arabism. Um, um nevertheless, um many Saudis also have seen these different nationalisms not as contradictory to one another. I talked to one historian called Abdallah al Urthaymeen um, prominent dynastic historian who actually describes his loyalties in terms of circles. So um, he is first a Saudi, and then he is an Arab, so a member of the wider region, and then he is a Muslim, a member of um, yeah the largest community. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, Arab nationalism figures prominently, um, especially in the period between The 1920s and 1950s, or 1960s, in dynastic historiography and to some extent in local historiography. After the 1970s, Saudi nationalism becomes more important than Arab nationalism. Also, because Arab nationalism, on the whole, in the whole um, Arab world, declines partly as a result of. Arab defeats against Israel. There was a war in 1967 against Israel that um, Arab countries lost in another war in 1973. Gamal Abdel Nasser died um, around 1970. And um, thereafter, the Arab nationalist movement lost momentum and Saudi nationalism was on the rise. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And that, that's a, that, I was going to ask a question about... Uh, Islamism, and I wonder how they um, dealt with the sort of nascent forces, because it was in fashion in the 1940s and 50s, I think, and then it fell out of fashion during the socialist, nationalist Pan-Arab period, and then it came back as with us today. How, how did they deal with um, uh, Pan- um, um, or, or Islamist ideology?
1: Well, if you will, um, the um, the Wahhabi mission uh, is actually connected to Islamists' um, ideologies. Um, the Wahhabi mission itself was um, and has been a religious reform movement. Um, so the, Sa- the Saudi family, as a champion of the Wahhabi mission, of the, of the mission of Sheikh Mohammed Ab- ibn Abd al-Wahhab, has long seen itself as a leader of Islamic reform or leader of Islam in the um, in the Muslim world in the world in general um, and especially if, um, these narratives about jahiliya about um, um, Saudi monarchs bringing the light of Islam to the darkness of an age of ignorance these narratives um, serve to give Saudi monarchs a pan-islamic Legitimacy, um, like I said, um, in the, since the nineteen seventies, these pan-Islamic narratives have not disappeared, um, but we've seen the rise of um, of nationalist narratives such as unification and development of the country. I should say here that unification um in the saudi context is not entirely secular either because the arabic word that is used for unification is tawhid which also means god's unity or monotheism so this um uh, the saudi is using a national narrative of unification um is still um sort of more religious um than perhaps um, narratives of German unifications or of Italian unification.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they had the advantage of Wahhabism in the sense that they could say this was an element. Of, it's a little bit like the 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 Poles and and Catholicism. You know, they could say, "Well, this is who we are. We're both Poles, but we're also Catholics," and it's sort of the same thing. Exactly. And, yeah. Um, Saudis
1: had- often said, "We are Saudis. We are Arabs, and we are Muslims," um, and some of them said we are perhaps the best Arabs because we are the original Arabs from the heartland of the Arab world, from the Arabian Peninsula. And, um, they also, um, yeah, perhaps saw themselves as the most formidable Muslims because, um, uh, they were the leaders of this Islamic, um, reform movement uh, started by Muhammad ibn Abd al-Wahhab in the 18th century.
0: Yeah. This is a little bit of an aside. I just, I'm curious. What do Saudis call themselves? Do they say we're we're, we're do they do they say they're Saudi or what, how, how do they speak of themselves? Do they um, say they're Arabs. They're Muslims, or do they say what? Do, how do they call themselves?
1: Yeah, in the um, at the high point of Arab nationalism around the 1950s, many um, Saudis would perhaps primarily identify as Arabs. Um, nevertheless, they've also always considered themselves Muslims too and more recently um, in the 1970 from the 1970s onwards um, with the rise of Saudi nationalism um, you have Saudis increasingly referring to themselves perhaps primarily as Saudis mm-hmm. um, this also has to do with with again globalization Saudis traveling increasingly tra- um, um, meeting people from other nations uh, abroad, also other Arabs, and then, of course, having to answer the question, where do you come from? Mm. And if a Saudi meets an Iraqi and, and the Iraqi asks the Saudi, where do you come from, um, the, um, the Saudi would say F- from Saudi Arabia rather than from, just I'm an Arab because the Iraqi would probably have guessed that the person is an Arab but um, is more interested in the specific question, which country
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that you talk about that that assisted this nation-building effort, nation-building through historiography, is that, uh, I believe it was in the late 60s or or early 70s, Saudi um, students began to go study history abroad. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Right. Um, This is um, part of the development efforts of the country. So development was not just the narrative to legitimize the country, but actually... There was, of course, an actual development program with development plans, although not on socialist foundations, um, like in the Soviet Union, but more on capitalist foundations, because Saudi Arabia has been an ally of America. Um, and in order to the um, um, to develop the country, it was seen as useful to send Saudi students abroad, and especially. To allies such as America. Um, and um, many, many um, Saudis in many, many disciplines studied abroad at major universities in Britain, in the United States of America, and other countries, including um, historians. And in one of my um, chapters on social and economic histories, I focus especially on a school of social and economic historians, many of whom studied at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, mm-hmm. um, where they learned about social and economic history, um, especially during the 1980s, a time when economic history was the history du jour, Um and these historians then actually applied social and economic analysis to the history of the Saudi state and provided another yet different narrative and another um, at least subtle challenge to dynastic histories, whereas dynastic history is often focused on the actions of the rulers and um yeah, especially the religious factors and the political factors. The social and his- economic historians, many of whom were trained at UCL, try to explain the Saudi state in terms of um, a religious, uh, sorry, a, um, a social or an um, economic creation. So some of the narratives that were produced was, for instance, that there was an economic crisis in. Central Arabia and that the Saudi state, perhaps rather than being a religious movement, was in fact a solution to social problems or economic problems at that time. Um, Many of these histories then offer materialist explanation um, of the creation of Saudi of um, the Saudi state, which which of course was a sensitive um, explanation because Saudi Arabia, as a religious country, as an Islamic country, and as a country allied with the free world, if you will, with America, um, saw itself as an opponent of atheism, of the, of the Soviet Union, of the um, Eastern Bloc. Um, and so these kinds of materialist explanations of um, uh, the Saudi state um well, we're sensitive in the Saudi context.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, do you mind if I ask some questions about the sort of nuts and bolts of history in in Saudi Arabia? And one question that occurs to me is, where do Saudi historians publish?
1: Um, very good question. Um, and that again leads me to armor um, uh, the um uh, to one of the central themes in my book, which is globalization, uh, um, increasing Saudis. have have published abroad as well as in the kingdom. Um, In the beginnings, um, some Saudis already published outside of the kingdom because printing presses appeared rather late in the Arabian Peninsula um, in sort of the last decades of the 19th century. um, And, Professional printing and typesetting ap- expertise was more available outside of the Arab, uh, outside of Saudi Arabia. So you had even dynastic histories um, being produced um, in other Arab countries. But of course, um, especially for authors of sensitive histories, whether it's local histories, regional histories, um, histories of the Shiites, um, or the social and economic histories. Um, foreign places of publication um, provided protection um, to some extent from censorship. Um, So um, whereas um, most domestic publications had to be vetted by the Ministry of Information or Ministry of Culture and Information, as it was later called, um, um, publications in Beirut, for instance, in Lebanon um, did not need to go um, to Um, uh, did not need to go um, um, through censorship. And so with globalization, with increased access to publishers in Beirut, in London, and in other places, um, we see the proliferation of this plurality of different narratives. Um, So the Saudi state has not been able to control Um, the historiographical landscape entirely because um, some elements of that landscape are publications um, written by Saudis but published
0: abroad. Mm -hmm. So if a historian wants to publish um, in Saudi Arabia, they have to submit a manuscript to the censor before it is published. That's correct. Yeah. But if they publish abroad, they don't have to.
1: Exactly. If they they publish in London or in Mm -hmm. Beirut.
0: Right, Obviously so it, books coming in over the border do they do they have to be submitted to censor?
1: Um, to um, to some extent, yes. However, curiously, many um, university libraries are actually exempt from censorship. So <laughs> university la- libraries have actually been allowed um, to acquire banned books as long as they don't display them publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are actually loops and. Um, Since the 1990s, Saudi Arabia has been connected to the Internet and um, now Saudis have been able to um, uh, publish books as e-books or download books as e-books, as PDF um, files from the Internet with even less control by, let's say, the Ministry of
0: Culture and Information. Mm -hmm. Are there bookshops?
1: Um, Yes, they are. Um, In most major cities.
0: Mm-hmm. So I have some questions about the way history is taught as well. At one point in the book, you mentioned that there's a very heavy Wahhabi influence on pedagogy in Saudi Arabia. How, how is history taught in on the, what we would call the high school level in the United States and then on the college level?
1: Um, in, um, um, in the, on the high school level, there is this very much this focus on Dynastic history, so the history of the monarchs, um, including the religious and the um, sort of political narratives legitimizing their rule. Um, in uh, on the college level, um, uh, there is a m- more openness in the cl- uh, curriculum, and particularly um, Saudi history students, history majors, have been able to write. Um, uh, undergraduate theses or master dissertations or um, uh, doctoral dissertations on many other topics aside from dynastic histories, um, including social and economic histories and including um, local and regional histories. And as in other countries, local and regional histories are sometimes seen as more suitable for the topic of a dissertation because local history is seen as more of a manageable topic. And sometimes the student comes from the region um, that um, he or she wants to study. So they've got access to local sources, um, which gives the professor who is supervising a dissertation confidence in the completion of the dissertation. So we have actually seen many local and regional histories Um, being first produced in the form of dissertations. Mm -hmm. And these um, dissertations sometimes employ this contribution narrative, where it is about the contribution of this region or that region to the establishment of the Saudi state, which challenges the notion of the Saudi state as being exclusively the creation of the Saudi monarchs. So interestingly, we see state-funded universities actually supporting um, uh, the creation of narratives that sometimes contradict the dynastic official
0: histories. Hmm. Hmm. That's that's interesting. Let me me go back to the high schools for a second. I, I don't know how to ask this question. When it comes to explaining how things happen in say a high school textbook, does it say by the will of God in 1932 the Saudi family came back to the throne? Um, or does it, does it give some more materialist explanation for it?
1: <laughs> Good question. It's certainly much more of a religious explanation that um, the Saudi family, as the leaders of the true religion, together with um, the scholars of the Wahhabi mission, um, have created the Saudi state with the blessing of God. Um, most certainly Um, and materialist explanations um, have been have been considered sensitive because um, they have been sometimes seen as challenging the religious legitimacy of the Saudi state and many sort of senior members of the government um, see the religious legitimacy of the Saudi state as the most important one Interestingly, um, sometimes they have been um, strengthened in this view by the collapse of the the Soviet Union. They saw that um, the Soviet Union collapsed although it had a materialist ideology. Um, So some Saudis, they looked at this and took the lesson from it that an Islamic legitimacy... Um, a divine legitimacy um is the only long-term legitimacy um uh, that uh, yeah um that can help the Saudi state to survive and thrive.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm sure you know Saudi historians and I just wondered when you get them alone in the corner or in a room what well, what do they talk about do they do they do they think that they are um, in some sense, hampered by state control. The reason I asked this, or my, my background in Russian history—I used to spend some time with Russian historians, Soviet historians, at the time—and they would say, you know, well, there are certain topics we can study and certain topics we can't. And they didn't seem particularly upset about that. They just said that's the way things work.
1: Yeah. Um. Good question. Um. There. Um. Um. There's.
0: Um,
1: yeah. Certainly, acknowledgements of red lines or sensitive topics. Mm-hmm. Um, tribal history, to some extent, is seen as a sensitive topic. Um, um, the um, history of the Shiite religious minority is a sensitive topic. Materialist histories, um, to some extent, are sensitive. Um, however, I think many Saudi historians would also acknowledge um, the huge amount of support that they actually um, got from this Saudi state as well. Uh-huh. So many um, Saudi historians who studied abroad at UCLA and other places did so with governmental scholarships. And they were later employed at Saudi state universities. Um, and um, the Saudi state being an oil state, uh, sometimes called a frontier state, um, Um, provides numerous benefits um, to all its citizens, including historians. Um, And the Saudi state, through its governmental agencies, has supported the publication of many different histories, um, not just narrowly dynastic histories, um, but sometimes even histories that could be seen as more sensitive. So I think what I would like to the uh, to do in this book and what also many Saudi historians acknowledge is that this Saudi state's role is perhaps double-edged that there is um, censorship, but there's also a lot of support. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, there is um, control, um, but there's also a lot of funding for historians for historical studies.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Actually, it's funny because there's a similar sort of situation in at least the sort of the people that I knew during the Soviet Union who studied history. They were all supported by the state and were very grateful for it. And many of them yeah. didn't have to teach, for example, and they had access to all the archives they wanted. Uh, they were actually quite well taken care of, and they recognized that. Um, yeah. So the censorship didn't really bother them so much. They, they realized that, you know, that it was actually a pretty good gig. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I, for instance, I don't know of it, of a single university-based Saudi historian who uh, went to prison for political reasons. Um, So I think overall, Saudi historians are actually quite comfortable. Um, They have limitations, but they also have more opportunities than um, perhaps um, historians do in poorer countries.
0: Yeah, who drive cabs. (laughs) <laughs> for instance yeah. um, that's good, well why don't we leave it at that today we've been talking with Matthias Dijerman about his book Historiography in Saudi Arabia, Globalization and the State in the Middle East uh, Matthias, why don't we close the interview with our traditional final question on the New Books Network and that is what are you working on now?
1: Um, thanks for that question um, now have, I'm staying in the history of the Arab world. Um, um, And I'm also staying in the history of scholarship. However, I'm moving to a different area of scholarship that is science. Um, I am right now working on two books. One is a history of biology in the Gulf States. um, And the second book is a history of modern astronomy um, in the uh, but in the wider Arab world. So I'm trying to expand my circles. Um, whereas with this first book of mine, I focused only on Saudi Arabia. With the second book, I'm trying to cover the Gulf states as a whole. And with that third book on astronomy in the Arab world, I'm trying to um, yeah, study the entire Arab world. Mm-hmm. Um, again, um, these are also um, under research topics. We know a lot about history of science in the pre-modern Arab world, in the medieval Islamic world, but we know rather little about um, the natural sciences in the modern and contemporary Arab world.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, good luck with those projects, and I hope that you'll come back on the show when you're done with them.
1: Oh, with great pleasure.
0: Good. Thank you so, so much. Let me say again that we've been talking to Matthias Dietermann about his book, Historiography in Saudi Arabia, Globalization and the State in the Middle East. Uh, let me first say, Matthias, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Absolutely. And let me say to all the people who listen to the many interviews on the New Books Network, thank you very much for your support, and I hope that you have a great week.